Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. So, hi everyone, this is Pranay Bonagiri, your Inside the Board's host, here today to bring you the nephrology episode of the Step 1 Study Smarter series. To help discuss these important topics, I have Dr. Pavan Anamaraju on the podcast today to review some Step 1 questions. So moving on to the next question, question number five, we have a 65-year-old man who presents to the clinic for a routine checkup. His past medical history is significant for GERD and multiple calcium oxalate kidney stones over the last three years. His blood pressure today is 145 over 100, a pulse of 86, respiratory rate of 14, and temperature of 97.6 degrees Fahrenheit. His physical examination is unremarkable. The physician decides to start the patient on an antihypertensive medication. Which of the following is the best choice for this patient? Is it A, Losartan, B, Lisinopril, C, Chlorthalidone, or D, Metoprolol? So this question is a stone question. And, uh, you know, he, he's a 65-year-old male who has calcium oxalate stones and he has hypertension. So, you know, whenever we are thinking of uh, stone disease, some of the principal uh, recommendations, as I mentioned, that you have to drink enough fluid, you have to restrict the sodium, they're fairly standard. As far as drug therapy is concerned, you know, it's uh, if if the patient is having high calcium in the urine, then we tend to use thiazide diuretics because it reduces the urinary calcium excretion. And if suppose the patient has high uric acid in the urine, then typically we give allopurinol. And if the patient has low citrate in the urine, we give potassium citrate tablets. So in this patient, you know, the clue is that the patient is having calcium oxalate stones. And if I were to use a antihypertensive, I would use a thiazide type of diuretic. And here, you know, chlorthalidone is a thiazide-like diuretic, which is probably the preferred agent. Losartan, on the other hand, you know, uh, Losartan actually has a uricosuric effect. And it typically used in patients who have gout, so to decrease the serum uric acid level. Lisinopril does not have any link with stones. Metoprolol does not have any link with stones. So the right answer in here would be chlorthalidone. Yes. So C, chlorthalidone was the correct answer. Um, in terms of thiazides, do you mind going through the other important side effects that uh, students should know for their exam? Yeah, sure. You know, whenever we use thiazides, I think the most common thing that you should remember is hyponatremia. You know, thiazides actually interfere with the diluting capacity of the kidney and therefore cause hyponatremia. Uh, they also cause hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia. Uh, they increase the reabsorption of the uric acid. So actually it causes hyperuricemia. So it's bad for the patients with gout. And, you know, in patients who who are on thiazides, it's linked with uh, uh, some metabolic changes and and increase in glucose concentration as well as hyperlipidemia. So these are the key things that I would remember when we talk about thiazides. Great. So moving on to question six, uh, we have a 54-year-old man who comes to see his physician due to high blood pressure. He's already taking metoprolol, amlodipine, and chlorthalidone but his BP control is still poor. His current blood pressure is 154 over 88. The physician decides to add enalapril to his medications. 
Two days later, he presents to the ER with shortness of breath and bilateral crackles heard on lung auscultation. His creatinine was found to be 2.4 milligrams per deciliter. His baseline two months ago was 1.1. Which of the following is the most likely cause? Is it A, renal artery stenosis, B, autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, C, a sclerodermal renal crisis, or D, hypertensive nephrosclerosis? So Prana, here the, the patient age group is 54 years, and he is already on three medications, right? He's on metoprolol, amlodipine, and chlorothalidone. And one of it is a diuretic. So he's on chlorothalidone, that's a diuretic. So so technically, he has resistant hypertension, you know, which is defined as three medications. One has to be a diuretic and still the blood pressure is out of control. So he has resistant hypertension. And the clue that's given here is that when the patient is started on an ACE inhibitor, the creatinine has almost doubled because it was 1.1 milligrams and then now it's 2.4 milligrams. And patient went into sounds like heart failure with bilateral clackles. You know, this kind of picture is very consistent with patients who have renal artery stenosis. So whenever we look at uh, any patient who has uh, refract, uh, who has difficult to control hypertension or resistant hypertension in this case, you know, we have to, we have to think about uh, renal artery stenosis. And there are actually certain, certain clues that actually uh, point you towards that. And one of it is that when you use an ACE inhibitor, the creatinine actually doubles. Uh, that's a clue that the patient has a stenotic lesion. Typically, when we give ACE inhibitors to a patient, it causes a he hemodynamic change, and we usually expect a 30% rise in creatinine. You know, and, but, but, but when you see a significant jump in the creatinine, almost double, then that usually raises the uh, suspicion of underlying renal artery stenosis, which is hemodynamically significant. We should also think about renal artery stenosis in patients who go into frequent flash pulmonary edemas. We should also think about renal artery stenosis when a patient who has blood pressure and that's fairly stable, and then suddenly it's, it starts going up, especially in patients who have underlying you know, risk factors for atherosclerosis. So those, those are some clues. And here, you know, based on those factors, they have the stem of the question is kind of points you towards renal artery stenosis. Uh, the other options, are autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Uh, polycystic kidney disease is also associated with hypertension, but those patients do not go into flash pulmonary edema or those patients do not double their creatinine when you give ACE inhibitors. You know. uh, scleroderma renal crisis can also present with difficult to control hypertension, uh, but you, know, you expect to see some skin changes consistent with scleroderma, some history of autoimmune disease. And this stem of the question does not touch on that. Now, hypertensive nephrosclerosis is a pathological term for, you know, hypertension. When you biopsy, that's what you see, hypertensive nephrosclerosis. So it's a pathological term. Uh, I would say the answer for this question would be choice A, renal artery stenosis. Exactly correct. Um, you touched on it briefly um, about stenotic les lesions having an atherosclerotic uh, basis. Uh, do you mind talking about the other population we kind of look for renal artery stenosis in? So renal artery stenosis, as, as I said, you know, predominantly you see uh, two forms, actually. One is 
you know, some patient who has underlying risk factors for atherosclerotic disease, who is smoker, who have coronary artery disease, and that kind that's usually falls into the category of atherosclerotic related renal artery stenosis. Now there is another entity where you see uh, the disease in relatively younger population uh, called fibromuscular dysplasia. And fibromuscular dysplasia is actually a non-inflammatory lesion. And uh, it's common in women, actually 90% uh, it's seen in women compared to men. It can be seen in men, but it's more common in women. In the past, we used to think that FMD is a disease of young women, but there is more data to show that we see this disease even you know, in elderly patients uh, with a wide range, you know, even into late 80s and 90s. Uh, so that paradigm has changed a little bit you know, when I was a resident. So FMD is, you know, will be a, usually in a question, it should be a woman, a female patient and should be a relatively younger population. And the patient usually do not have risk factors for atherosclerotic disease. And when you see the question in that context, then your attention should go towards fibromuscular dysplasia. Unlike this patient who is in his 50s or 60s, you should think more about atherosclerotic disease-related uh, renal artery stenosis. Great. Thank you so much. So for the sake of time, I'm going to skip the follow-up questions I had and move on to question seven. So we have a 56-year-old man who presents to the ER with crushing chest pain, diaphoresis, and pain in his left jaw and arm. His troponins are elevated. He is uh, diagnosed with an MI and managed appropriately. One of his post-MI medications is lisinopril. Which of the following physiologic changes is expected? Is it A, increased renin levels, B, increased angiotensin II levels, C, increased aldosterone levels, or D, increased ADH levels? So this is actually, Prana, is a very straightforward question. Uh, it's a physiology-based question, and you have to know the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone uh, pathway to get the answer right. You know, lisinopril is an ACE inhibitor, you know, and it prevents the conversion of, it blocks the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. So as a result, uh, upstream, you know, renin level will be increased. And aldosterone is in the downstream path, so aldosterone will be suppressed, angiotensin 2. So uh, they will all be suppressed, and renin will be increased with lisinopril. So I think it's a relatively straightforward question in my view, if you know the pathway. Yes, I agree. And I, I think this is one of the most important pathways that students should know for uh, their step one exam. So yes, a increased renin levels was the correct answer. Um, so while we're on the subject of the, the renin angiotensin aldosterone system pathway, can we talk about the major activators that really set the system off and then kind of like the big results of this pathway getting activated? Sure. You know, so it's a, I completely agree with you, Pranay. This is a pathway that you should know and you use it, I would say, even after medical school. Uh, so typically what happens is uh, renin is present in the juxtaglomerular cells and uh, typically whenever there is hypoperfusion like such as hypotension uh, or there is decreased chloride delivery to the to the macular denser cells then renin is actually activated the important thing to remember is it's not the sodium delivery it's actually the chloride delivery there's a sensor actually that says hey 
you know, if the delivery of the chloride is low, then probably I'm hypoperfused and I should secrete renin. And renin, when it is secreted from juxtaglomerular cells, it actually facilitates angiotensinogen from liver to angiotensin 1. And angiotensin 1 is converted to angiotensin 2 by angiotensin convertase enzyme. And angiotensin 2 downstream causes uh, secretion of aldosterone. Now, aldosterone is a hormone that uh, causes sodium reabsorption and increases pretty much the blood volume, and that actually causes hypertension. So it's a defense mechanism in, in the state of shock or hypovolemia. Angiotensin 2 by in itself is a very potent vasoconstrictor. Uh, it's, it's a natural oppressor, and it also causes vasoconstriction and uh, compensatory rise in the blood pressure. So I think these are the two mechanisms I would remember from RAS. Okay, thank you for that. So moving on to our second to last question, question number eight, we have a 73-year-old woman who is brought to the ER by her daughter due to lethargy and decreased appetite. The daughter reports that the patient has been urinating more frequently for the past week and has been complaining of some pain while urinating. Over the past few days, she has lost weight and her mental status and energy have deteriorated. On physical exam, the patient is somnolent, weak, and frail. She also has dry, cracked lips. She also has skin tenting of her arms. Her urinalysis is positive for 25 to 50 white blood cells, 3 plus bacteria, and positive nitrites, along with hyaline casts and trace proteinuria. Which of the following is most consistent with her diagnosis? Is it A, urine osmolality of less than 350 osmoles per liter? B, a BUN creatinine ratio less than 20 to 1? C, a fractional excretion of sodium less than 1%? Or D, a fact, fractional excretion of sodium greater than 2%? All right. So this question, you know, uh, so this is an elderly woman you mentioned and who is having some dysuria and frequent urination and looks like her urine is pretty dirty, 3 plus bacteria, WBCs, positive nitrates. So she probably has a UTI. You mentioned that she has CAS, and the CAS that we see here are hyaline CAS. Hyaline CAS are typically, you know, it can be seen in patients who are, are, are hypovolemic, uh, or sometimes hyaline CAS can be entirely a normal finding as well. You know, here there are some suggestions that patient has cracked lips and she looks dry and there is some skin tenting. It looks like the patient is hypovolemic. The, the blood pressure typically should be mentioned, but you know, that's not mentioned here. So I would assume that the patient is has UTI and is hypovolemic on exam. And you know, typically when we see a patient with hypovolemic or pre-renal AKI, we expect to see that the fractional excretion of the sodium is less than 1%. And you know, obviously when a patient is uh, dry, as we talked about, the renin-angiotensin system will be upregulated and the aldosterone level will be high. And all the sodium pretty much that's filtered from the proximal tubule is reabsorbed uh, because the body is very sodium avid, so much so that usually 99% of the sodium is reabsorbed. And therefore, we see that only less than 1% is excreted. And that's usually what we mean by fractional excretion of sodium less than 1%. Uh, that is consistent with pre-renal picture. Uh, fractional excretion of sodium of 2% is usually consistent with ATN. Uh, urine osmolality of less than 350, you know, urine osmolality of the kidney 
can vary from all the way from you know 50 to 1200 osmoles per liter so here you know they're trying to mention that it's relatively not that concentrated uh, so i would say the most favorable answer is phenol less than 1% answer c yeah so that that is the correct answer c when we're talking about pre-renal akis uh, step 1 i feel like also likes to focus on the other lab values that we kind of went through in this question. Do you mind just telling the the listeners what lab values sh- they should be looking for for a pre-renal AKI in terms of urine osmolality, BUN creatinine ratio, and that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. You know, for step one, I would say for a patient who is hypovolemic or pre-renal, you know, the body is very sodium avid. So the urine sodium will be low, usually less than 10 or less than 20. Uh, so that's a sign. Uh, we should also, uh, as I mentioned, when we check the fractional excretion of sodium, it should be less than 1%. Uh, and when a person is very hypovolemic, the urine should be concentrated. Typically, you know, it can range from all the way up to 1200. But typically, if you start seeing numbers, you know, 500, 500, beyond 500 osmoles, usually it's a concentrated urine. And uh, BUN to creatinine ratio of more than 20 is to 1 is another classic thing that's usually described for step 1. Thank you. And moving on to our last question. So we have a 65-year-old man who presents to the clinic with increased vomiting, nausea, and malaise that began a few days ago. He has a history of osteoarthritis and has been taking ibuprofen regularly for the past two years. In the past two months, though, he has increased his ibuprofen use because his fingers have been hurting more. On physical exam, there's mild CVA tenderness. His urinalysis is notable for 3 plus protein, 2 plus blood, 10 to 20 RBCs, 10 to 20 WBCs. It's nitrite negative, has WBC casts. Which of the following is the next best step in management for this patient? Is it A, a renal biopsy? B, to discontinue ibuprofen? C, to treat with corticosteroids? Or D, treat with ciprofloxacin? All right. So here the patient has vomiting and nausea. He has osteoarthritis and he's been taking ibuprofen. So on exam, he has mild severe tenderness, but his UA actually shows protein and blood and WBCs and WBC CAS. You know, it does not show any bacteria. So when, whenever, you know, you see, you always have to pay attention, especially in nephrology to the urine analysis. And, and you may find clues when you actually mention the the presence of CAS. Uh, as I said, highland CAS can be seen in pre-renal state or it can be physiologically normal. You know, muddy brown CAS or granular CAS are seen in ATN. RBC CAS are seen in glomerular pathology, either nephritic or nephrotic syndromes. And when we see WBC CAS, it's typically suggestive of uh, interstitial nephritis. Now, in a patient who is taking ibuprofen, which is one of the most common causes for interstitial nephritis, I would think that that's probably is the diagnosis uh, for him. And, you know, the primary treatment of interstitial nephritis is to discontinue the offending agent. And in this case, uh, the first step would be to discontinue ibuprofen. Typically, you will give a trial of steroids, uh, but actually studies show that if the interstitial nephritis is related to NSAIDs, steroids usually don't work that well. And treat with ciprofloxacin is obviously wrong because the patient does not have a UTI. Renal biopsy is definitely a 
you know, something worth considering because that's the only way to establish the diagnosis. You know, I also want to mention to, to the listeners that, you know, NSAIDs are very notorious. They can cause pre-renal AKI. They can cause renal AKI in the form of interstitial nephritis. Uh, it's linked with glomerular diseases, which I mentioned earlier. And it can also cause sloughing of the renal papillae called papillary necrosis and can cause obstruction as well. So NSAIDs are like a very attractive topic for question writers, uh, especially for step one. Uh, so here, uh, going back, you know, I think the answer is discontinue ibuprofen. Yes, perfect. So yeah, B, discontinue ibuprofen was the correct answer. So you did mention how NSAIDs have a lot of renal side effects, um, specifically for interstitial nephritis. Are there any other drugs we should be aware of? Absolutely. There's a whole range of drugs and the list is growing every year, Pranay. Uh, but, you know, there are some classic drugs that appear on exams. You know, I would say the watch out for omeprazole, you know, or any PPI for that matter. Typically, omeprazole uh, is common one and NSAIDs is the second most common. And then if they're giving you any antibiotic, typically the penicillin type of antibiotic, either oxacillin or some that kind of penicillin will be given. And, you know, sulfur drugs uh, like Lasix or anything that has a sulfur moiety can cause interstitial nephritis. I mean, the list is growing literally uh, a lot. And one other thing that recently has emerged is some of the cancer medications like Pembrolizumab, uh, they can also, but I don't think they will appear on the exam for step one, but that's something to note. They're also linked with interstitial nephritis. Uh, One final thing for students to remember is that classically interstitial nephritis is you know, it's described as a combination of, uh, or should I say, a triad of rash, fever, and eosinophilia. But please remember, everybody, that it's only seen in very minority of patients, only 10%. And in the past few years, you know, we used to look for urine eosinophils, but urine eosinophils are no more suggested for the diagnosis of interstitial nephritis. The definitive diagnosis can only be established with renal biopsy. Great. Thank you for that explanation. Um, so I want to be mindful of your time, Dr. Anamaraju. So with that question, I think we're, we can end this podcast. Is there anything else you want the listeners to know in regards to nephrology, exam questions, or just exam taking in, in general? You know, I, I really enjoy the, enjoyed this uh, podcast, Pranay. You know, it's fun teaching and fun to be with you. You know, I would say that nephrology often is perceived as a complex subject, but please remember that it's embedded in physiology always there is a reason and i would say that you know during your clinical clerkships please uh, spend time with a nephrologist and try to find answers i think nephrology is a very fun subject i i agree uh, and with that we'll end this podcast mm-hmm.